news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi Carly and Cece, let's dive into today's Books with Hooks. Cece, why don't you get us started with the first query letter? All right. Dear Ms. Waters, I am seeking representation for my upmarket novel, The Bittersweet Spot, complete at 95,000 words. The novel is a late-stage coming-of-age story following Latina protagonist Callie Cruz as she questions her muted identity years after her transition from attorney to stay-at-home mom. Your recent tweet beautifully captures Callie's central struggle, accepting that, quote, you can love your children and love the deepest parts of your mind that your child can never know, end quote. The book also fits your hashtag MSWL request for a unique take on motherhood and identity identity and call for plus-sized heroines. Fans of I Don't Know How She Does It and The Overdue Life of Amy Byler will appreciate Callie's quirky, honest, and at times achingly sad attempt to reconcile.
reconcile motherhood and selfhood. Callie sets out on a comedic yet poignant journey of self-discovery after her five-year-old son's type 1 diabetes diagnosis and her father's son death. She confronts a growing disconnect from her husband and attraction to her handsome priest and tries to recalibrate her personal and professional goals in the face of motherhood. She awkwardly turns to her son's pediatrician, also a type 1 diabetic, for advice on how to handle her inappropriate crush and unraveling life. Although he's initially reluctant to move beyond the doctor-patient boundary, their relationship evolves from medical guidance and snarky banter into an unexpected yet endearing friendship. But Callie ultimately realizes she alone must choose her path, pursue her attraction for her priest, save her marriage, or make a different choice entirely. The Bittersweet Spot provides a lighter look at perseverance in the face of pandemonium and offers an inspiring view of marriage, motherhood, caretaking beyond martyrdom. Callie's unique voice, growth trajectory, and multi-layered friendship with her pediatrician offers the novel series potential as a modern-day Anne of Green Gables. I was published in The Archive, Duke's Literary Magazine, and the Duke Journal of Comparative and International Law, and more recently have written multiple essays featured on Scary Mommy. Thank you for considering my query. I hope to hear from you soon. Best regards, JC. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Cece. Okay, Carly, that was addressed to you. So why don't you tell us what you think? Yeah, I thought they did such a good job. I love that opening paragraph. Obviously, it's full of flattering compliments and, and quotes of my tweet. So, you know, I get to pat myself on the back with that one and, you know, feeds into my ego. <laughs> and I thought they did a really good job of making that very modern, had all of the MSWL mentioned my tweet and some comps I think that are great I don't know how she does it was a book and then the movie with Sarah Jessica Parker and the overdue life of Amy Byler was a book that came out a few years ago so I know both of those comps so you know obviously I'm the the right person for this and I thought the title was great the word count could be on the long side but you know it's under 100 so I think that's reasonable the next paragraph is the kind of the content paragraph in terms of the plot itself so I thought this was pretty well done I mean being able to get your whole plot into one paragraph is tough so I appreciate that this person did that the only thing I'm a little bit confused about is the handsome priest part. You know, I don't know too much about priestly relationship and religion and if priests are even allowed to have relationships. Like, I don't know too much about that. Cece's giving me a big no. So, so yeah, so I'm a little bit confused about, like, by mentioning that you are attracted to somebody who is so unattainable, like, is that really a plot driver? So I was just a little, like, you know, not not too sure about that. But overall, I think the unlikely friendship angle between the, the mom and the doctor, I think, is really interesting thing as well like she's also trying to achieve an unattainable friendship because doctors aren't supposed to cross that kind of patient you know doctor confidentiality kind of border right and so I think that's so interesting that this character is like not only trying to attain something unattainable in their romantic life but also in their friendship life so I have a lot of questions about this plot and how much trouble this mom is going to get herself into because she's kind of setting herself up for some trouble and then we get into the last paragraph here talking a little bit about some themes similar comp so I was a little bit confused by the Anne of Green Gables comp because we had our comp up at the top, you know, for fans of I don't know how she does it and the overdue life of Amy Byler. I wasn't too sure on why we had this modern day Anne of Green Gables comp. So I would just probably strike that through. And the series potential, like most upmarket fiction isn't really something that has series potential. So I was a little bit confused on why we felt this book needed series potential. So I would just pitch it as a standalone. Um, the only books that really, especially in upmarket fiction that get sequels are extremely successful books in terms of like, you know, we're selling hundreds of thousands of copies kind of thing. 
things. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a lofty goal, especially at this stage, not saying you can't do it. You know, I'm all for everybody shooting, you know, shooting their shot and, you know, going for their dreams and laying it out there. But I just don't think in the query level, that is a great idea. So other than that, you know, I think it's a pretty sound query follows the three paragraph structure. And clearly this character is going to get into some trouble. So overall, I think it's uh, pretty good. Yeah, there's certainly going to be an interesting character arc here. And, you know, Fleabag did the whole priest thing really, really well. So maybe, you know, people are are wanting more of this content. Cece, what do you think? I really enjoyed this query letter. It's very well written, very well structured. You can tell that the writer spent a lot of time putting it together. If I had to give her notes, like the personalization is just is just wonderful. Whenever I see someone like referencing a tweet that I, I put out or Carly or anyone else, I'm always like, well, this person's really paying attention. So that's always great. In terms of the plot, like the second paragraph, right, that covers the plot. I haven't read enough of her work to know this for sure, but I'm guessing that there's a lot of drama that happens. Like falling in love with a priest is a major taboo subject. And I am all for taboo subjects in fiction. I don't know what this says about me, but I think it's very exciting. So I would perhaps try to include a bit more plot points into the plot paragraph and remove some of like the inner struggles. Right now it reads like it's all in her head, meaning like all of the struggles, all of the conflict, it's just the desire in her head. And don't get me wrong, that can be a powerful thing, but I'm guessing because it's upmarket that there's probably a lot of actual things that happen as opposed to just inner struggles. So I would try to include a few more plot twists and plot points in that paragraph just to give us a little bit more drama without giving too much away. Perfect. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? We start off the scene uh, first thing in the morning uh, with his mom, kind of cuddled in bed with some children. We have three kids kind of watching cartoons at, at 7.40 in the morning. We're given a time stamp. So I felt like we're falling into a couple trope really early, which is the waking up in the morning trope. And then like just telling us a lot of fact kind of thing. So we we start off, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mother to three children, Landon, age seven, Ernie, age five, Lizzie, age three. You know, Ernie's named after my great-grandmother, Ernestine, and Lizzie after my mother, Elizabeth. That's just a lot of facts, you know? I just didn't really understand why we needed to kind of lay it out like that. There's just so many other ways to do it. And, you know, this is all information we can tuck in later for example, like the the, the stuff about the age by saying they're in bed watching cartoons, like we already have an idea that like they're young children, right? So little things like that, you can build in through the actual scene itself. You don't have to spell it all out. And things like, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mother, you know, you could tuck that in another way saying like, oh, you know, I I haven't worked for X number of years or something like that. Just, you know, fit it in a different way and and not a telling way. He also had another kind of hell moment, which was, you know, talking about the dynamic with the husband, which is they feel bad for poor sweet Richard having to tolerate my antics, but that's always been our dynamic. He respects that I'm vocal and I wouldn't be married to him if I didn't. And Landon's my only child named after no one, which suits him perfectly. So all of these things, like we could do it through dialogue, through action, through so many other things that I just don't think we need to kind of spell it out. Like, especially since the husband's not there in that scene. Like, I don't know why we need to even bother with the husband right now. Like, let's just focus on, as Cece says, getting to the tension. <laughs> so, so then we're getting into like a medical moment. The mom's just upset about the kid being up all night and being sick and that sort of thing. So they're off to the doctor. And there was a really beautiful line that I just wanted to highlight because I always like to pull out some lines that I really like. The line was, while Ernie sits on my lap, his arms loosely around my neck, his heart beating with mine like it did for all of those months he lived in my body. I just thought the really sweet line I wanted to highlight. And then we kind of cut to the doctor stuff. So I liked this, like we're building this banter here. I thought that it could have been a little bit more clear that we are engaging in banter. I wasn't, again, because I read the queer letter, I get that, you know, there's going to be maybe a friendship here, but I, I would have really liked to kind of understand this this banter again we're doing a lot of telling 
like he's Canadian and I mock him for the oot in a boot which I'm sure everybody hears my Canadian accent whenever I'm speaking I'm sure Bianca gets messages about that yeah and just like instead of the telling us that you're mocking like show us through the banter that we're doing mocking like even though she's in an, uh, an intense dramatic situation concerned about her son's health I don't know I just felt like we could have done a lot more through plot and in being in scene and through dialogue and I think that would have just made this lie a little bit faster and for us to kind of get a better sense of what's going on a little bit quicker so I think there's tons of potential here it's like you know I'm, I'm being really nitpicky but I really think that banter should just feel a little bit more natural because a lot of times I feel like the author leads with the banter and then explains the banter which I, I think we just we just don't need to do that another example is the doctor says breathe Callie Cruz this isn't your fault and right away I'm like well why is he calling her Callie Cruz and then you know she explains like oh this is why he calls me Callie Cruz so again explaining that through the banter I think would be a little bit better or even like a nurse coming into the room and like you know and in a third person we can kind of like see how the banter happens that's separate from the nurse do you know what I mean to try and create that dynamic through scene so again tons of potential here a lot of drama you know we're concerned about the son's health so I think we have a, a lot of potential but I would just kind of tidy up the the show versus hell and um and just make it a little clear like where the banter is yeah that show versus tell is just so so important and I feel like the show versus tell and the mistake that's been made in terms of showing witty banter and then explaining witty banter I feel like all of this just comes from a lack of confidence and this is where we just need to trust ourselves more as writers just trust that our dialogue is showing that it's witty banter and that we don't have to tell these things and showing young children in bed early in the morning watching cartoons then that becomes trusting our reader to be able to join the dots and be able to understand what that situation is and it's something that I still do to this day so don't feel bad if this is something that you're doing it's just something we need to guard against. Cece your thoughts? Well my thoughts are your thoughts because you're in my head like when you mentioned the you have to trust yourself and you have to trust your reader I was gonna go on this explanation about how these two things are actually connected but you you did that already <laughs> so yeah I I really liked the pages I I did think there was a lot of over explaining this is like very chatty and very engaging with the reader she almost breaks the fourth wall and and talks to us and that's great that's very voicey that's in keeping with the genre but you don't need to over explain because the reader is intelligent and the reader will get it and more importantly you're intelligent and you should trust your writing so like an example is when right on the first page she mentions that she searched the internet and type 1 diabetes was the first thing to pop up but then her pediatrician assured her that slight weight loss was fine so this is told in narration and then immediately we see the dialogue kind of like a very mini flashback of her asking the pediatrician but you already told us that we don't have to see it right so I would remove those lines with that mini flashback there's a lot that's working really well here the line where she says that every sick child is someone's sweet boy or girl the line where she refers to the pediatrician as my pediatrician have you noticed that all moms do this like the pediatrician is the child's pediatrician but all moms say my pediatrician because your child is is your heart that's walking around right like outside your chest so so of course you you would do that the part where she says like she eats real food like me referring to june the receptionist i i believe and that was just great and obviously i thought that like the whole mrs asole comment was really funny and i just i really like so much here i just think that honestly this could be like one page in terms of like if you cut the over explaining as well do we have to start like with her waking up like to build on carly's comment like about the trope the waking up trope like i don't know i feel like we could maybe even start with her in the hospital and then like if if the pediatrician is essential to the story and obviously based on the query letter he is he could be there or he could be on the phone or 
she could be like, how come he's not here yet? I don't know. I just, the backstory that it really is diabetes and she was right and nobody believed her could be inserted with like two carefully placed lines. And then we could be in the hospital already seeing like more action. Because I do think that given the genre, it's really important that it's jam packed with like interesting and intriguing and just very action filled plot. Thanks so much, Cece. Okay, Carly, would you like to read our next query letter? Absolutely. Here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you for creating your wonderful podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I only discovered it recently and I love it already. I'm glad to have the opportunity to submit my query in the first five pages of my novel, Suicide in Cold Blood, for your review and critique. It's a traditional mystery complete at 84,700 words. When 23-year-old Julia Haven was accepted into a college-sponsored accounting internship with Young and Svelte Industries, she was sure she was on her way. Three months later, she was dead. The police ruled it a suicide. Four days after being notified of Julia's death, registered nurse Beatrice Haven receives a note her daughter wrote on the day she died. When Beatrice reads it, she is convinced Julia was murdered. Outraged and devastated, Beatrice goes after her daughter's killers. The police have closed the case so they won't help her. Alone, she sets out to take on Young and Svelte and anyone else who had a hand in Julia's death. Before she threw, two more people will die and it soon becomes terrifyingly clear that if she doesn't drop her investigation, so will she. It's the motion picture Eye for an Eye meets Kimberly McCrate's novel Reconstructing Amelia with a dash of corporate corruption and international injury. I am an affiliate member of Mystery Writers of America and have attended several writers' conferences, including the 2019 NY Pitt Conference and the Cincinnati Writers' Workshop, also in 2019. I'm also a grandmother and lover of roses, homemade bread, red wine, and chocolate. I figure if I have to get my antioxidants, I might as well enjoy it. I genuinely hope that you fall in love with Beatrice. I did. Thank you for your time, and I look, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Linda. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what did you think? So again, this is a very well-written query letter. Clearly, this author put a lot of thought into it. So okay, notes. I would move the line um, with the comps to the first paragraph, right after 84,000 words, which by the way, you can just round up to 85. So she mentioned that Julia was murdered, right? And having read the pages, I understand that she thinks Julia was murdered by the company. So I would add that, like she's convinced Julia was murdered by the company, just so that the second paragraph makes sense. As well, and this is in part because I have read the pages, this query letter makes me think that we're going to start with Julia's story, that the first POV I'm going to get is Julia's, and it's not, it's Beatrice. And I I'm, I'm, could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Julia won't even feature in the story since in the, in the beginning she's dead, unless we like go back in time. So I would just try to find a way to start the query letter, the, the second paragraph, the plot paragraph with Beatrice. She's our hero. She's our protagonist. I'd like to be invested in her journey as early as the query letter, right? Like, I think that's important. So it's really just a rewrite, which I'm guessing will be like time consuming, but but easy to do in terms of like, if Beatrice is your hero, you, you know everything about her. I would also try to add a line, because again, I don't know enough about the story, but in a good mystery, it's never only about who did it, right? Or even why they did it. A good mystery is interesting because when you go on that journey, other secrets are revealed. Other things that have to do with that, the, with the killing, but there are also unrelated. So I would try to add a line about that, right? About the secrets that are unraveled, about the world that starts to crumble around her. Because of course, it's very high stakes that maybe Beatrice's life could be in danger, but it should also affect her world. It should affect, I don't know, the town or the company or someone else, right? I want to see that effect that like a bomb going off and like the ripple effect that everything is, everything is touched by this, this murder and her investigation. So yeah, these are my notes. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Carly? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really, really good analysis. The other thing um, I think you hit on, which was important was, yeah, whose story is this? Who does it belong? 
belong to who's going to be telling it. So I assumed it was a dual POV because with a comp like Reconstructing Amelia, that is a dual POV comp. You know, it's pretty clear. Like if you're going to use that comp, it's a dual POV, like a mother telling the story, a daughter telling the story. There's a murder. There's a mystery. And so I definitely thought it was a dual POV. So that's interesting that we're not sure whether it is or not. So I would make that very clear. I like what CC was saying about how does this implicate the community or the city or the town? I really, really like that. Like absolutely everybody. I'm obsessed with Mayor of Easttown. So I've, I've been talking about it on Instagram. Like, who do you think did it? By the time this podcast comes out, it'll be next week and we're going to know who did it. So you guys can all laugh at me. But um, but yeah, I'm obsessed with just, yeah, that like a community feeling and how a murder or a mystery really affect everybody else. It has that ripple effect. I think I think that's really, really important. I think the title is going to turn some people off. Suicide in Cold Blood. I think it's tricky, especially when you're comping, again, Reconstructing Amelia. It's such like a women's suspense or, you know, women's fiction suspense domestic. Like it was one of the first domestic suspense novels, arguably. So yeah, I, I think that that title is really, really tricky. I don't have a better one for you yet. <laughs> but the word suicide is triggering, you know, in cold blood. Again, that's murder. So I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to juxtapose suicide versus murder. But it's it's a triggering title. And I, I think it's it's going to be problematic. So I would definitely just grab that with a new one. And I was a little bit confused by the company name. Like, so it's spelled out like young and then the letter N and then spelt. So young and spelt industries. I didn't, I couldn't really tell if this was like ironic or trying to be cute or exactly what it was because it's an accounting internship with a company called Young and Svelte. So when I think of something like Young and Svelte, I'm kind of thinking MLM. I'm thinking like herbal life. I'm thinking stuff like that. So I think I would just try to explain a little bit what this company does because it really just sounds like they're selling weight loss, you know, supplements or something like that. That's the vibe that I get. So if this is like an MLM murder mystery, tell me that because that sounds great. And I would, if anybody out there has an MLM murder mystery, please send it to me. So yeah, I would say the hook overall is great, right? Like, a, you know, this young woman starting off her life, um, you know, thinks thinks she's on her way. And then the mom finds out, you know, something, something sinister has happened. It's an awesome, awesome hook. One thing I think that CC nailed was the whole, like, who is actually doing the killing? Because a company can't really kill somebody, like a single person. I mean, we can get dramatic here and say it was multiple people, but like in the queer letter, it says goes after da- the daughter's killers, plural. Again, how does she know there's multiple, more than one killer? Or if we're saying like the company itself is doing the killing, I just think we need to nail that down a little bit more. To me, it just it suggested that the author obviously knows more than the reader and they're either leading or not being careful enough with their language. So either way, we need to be a little bit particular about that. And then for the calm, it says the motion picture, eye for an eye. Motion picture sounds a little stilted, so just call it film or movie. And then, yeah, I think Reconstructing Melee is a great comp. It's a little getting a little bit older, but like it's, it's again, a cornerstone of, of that genre. So I think that's great. I think the author bio, kind of the writer's bit was great. I also like, you know, red wine and chocolate as my antioxidant. So, so I think that was lovely. And I think it's a really strong start if we just kind of get a new title and, and do a little tinkering. Cece, these are strong pages. Here are my notes. I would very simple thing, but I would just include the year right at the top because it does start with her like confessing to a priest. And I mean, I don't know what this says about me, but I don't quite see this happening as often as perhaps we did maybe many years ago. So I don't know. I didn't know where we were in time. And I guess just adding 2017 to the top would make sense because she does explain that later towards the end of the pages. And it didn't, it felt a little like unnatural. So just add Florida 2017. Like that's all you need to do at the top. It's a really easy and simple device to, to make that clear. My thoughts as I was reading this is that there's a lot of info dumping in the dialogue, given that he's her priest, like for the listener, she's essentially confessing that she's going to, the first line is great. It's forgive me father for I intend to sin. And then she 
basically tells the priest that she's going to go after her daughter's killers because she got a letter from her daughter with a key to a safety deposit box. And she's convinced that her daughter was murdered and as opposed to, um, to committed suicide. I don't know if saying committed is right, but her daughter did not kill herself. Her daughter was murdered, according to, to her mom. But like, if this person is her priest um, and she seems very devout, he knows a whole bunch of things already. Like she, there's a line that where she says, how can you even ask me that father? You're not hearing me. Bill and I tried for decades to have a child. I was 42 when Julie was born. She was a gift from God and they took her from me. And she goes on like, he already knows this. I'm convinced he knows this. He's her priest. She confesses every Sunday, I'm assuming, probably even sometimes even more often. And also just on that, priests are not like hairdressers because you will go to the same hairdresser 10 times in a row. And every time they'll ask you what the hell you do and the same questions. And I feel like a priest is not going to make these same mistakes. Carry on, CC. No, it's true. I agree. And like he, this is like obviously a, a, a close relationship, right? Like, so, so he knows this. There's just a lot of repetition. Like he keeps telling her that if you kill these people, you're no better than them. And of course the priest would say this. And of course he would say it more than once in real life, but see in dialogue in, in a book, it's not supposed to be exactly like in real life. In real life, we use filler words a lot more often. In real life, we repeat ourselves a lot more often. So it's it's a little, it sounds unnatural and a little tedious to, to repeat the same thing over and over again, to read the same thing over and over again. Another example of the info dumping is when the priest says, I've known you for a long time, B. I married you and Bill all those years ago and I baptized Julie. Like, why would he say that? It just doesn't sound natural. But like enough about the info dumping. I did think think that like she mentioned, uh, this is Beatrice referring to Julie. She also sent me an index card with a safety deposit box key taped to it. Don't you get it? I know what it looks like, but this is no suicide. Here's the thing. Has she gone to the box? I'm sorry. You get a safety deposit key. Like you go to the box right away. You don't go to the priest first. And, And if you do, because maybe that's your character, then start with that, right? Like maybe the scene should start with her saying, I like the, the the line, so keep the line. But then instead of starting the scene in the way she's currently starting, maybe it could begin with her confessing um, that she received a letter. It would make sense for her to update the priest, right? Since she talks to her priest all the time, it's, she's he's someone she trusts and whose counsel she relies on. And then slowly with no info dump, which means like interspersing the dialogue with narration, we'd understand the context of the letter. We'd understand that her daughter died, that everyone thinks it was a suicide, which means she can't be buried on sacred ground, which is a big deal for, for Beatrice. Um, but Beatrice is convinced it's a suicide. And at one point, the priest could ask her gently, like, but why is that a sin? Because you getting a letter and being convinced that, that it was a murder isn't a sin. And then she could confess her intentions. And that would be more impactful, right? Like that would be like more like, dun dun, I'm going to go after them. I do want to say also, as, as another plot issue, I don't get why she thinks the company murdered them. If there was something in that note that said, these people are not who they claim to be. There's something sinister going on here. Kind of like John Grisham's The Firm. Then we need to note that explicitly. Because the whole like, there's a note. I'm convinced the company murdered her. Like to Carly's point, a company can't actually, a company does not have hands or legs. They can't actually murder someone, right? Like, so I think that we need more clarity there. It's just, she's sounding like, like she's making a lot of assumptions. And I don't think that's the intention. I think the intention is for us to be invested in her theory so we can believe that with her and go on that journey. I will also add that even though, like I'm saying, there's info dump and I need more clarity. There's like a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of powerful themes. Crisis of faith can be a very interesting moment in someone's life, a good place to start. We feel for a character who's going through that. It's an interesting set of plot 
thought wise too, right? Like I want to go to that safety deposit box. I want to see what's inside. I want to understand like what happened to Julie in that internship. So there's a lot to work here. I just, I do think that it's about figuring out the, the exact entry point. Perfect. Thanks, Cece. Carly? Yeah, I agree. I think the crisis of faith thing is very interesting. And I think the concern for a religious mother that their child might not be buried in sacred ground is very strong. So I think there's that's excellent. There was one line that I found um, that I thought was really beautiful that the priest, you know, the mother's explaining all these problems and the priest says, if Julie was murdered, God knows it. I thought that was so beautiful. And just like for any parent that has lost a child just to know that like, I don't know, God is so loving and all knowing in that even if it was a murder God would have known therefore God would not hold the child in contempt for suicide I don't know I thought that was so beautiful and the next line says he saw his son murdered too remember anyway just from a religious point of view in terms of like contextualizing that in a modern context and in the the example of of suicide versus murder I think that was really beautiful and I don't particularly love that line I thought that was very insightful so I can see how this book is going to be juxtaposing that that whole theme which I think is beautiful so now I'm kind of coming back to the whole of this project. So are we supposed to believe that Beatrice is trustworthy? You know, we don't know that for sure. And especially um, a quote unquote, I hate this word, but like hysterical mother put in this impossible situation. Yeah, I don't know. I just wasn't sure. Are we supposed to trust her? Is she supposed to be reliable or unreliable? Is this supposed to be serious or funny? Like, I don't really love the opening line, bless me, father, for I intend to sin. It felt very like, I'm not sure if, if it's supposed to be funny, if it's supposed to be serious. It felt very uh, kind of just trying to start the book in the right place but ultimately didn't really feel like it was starting the book in the right place for me because yeah I just couldn't really get a sense of what that tone was supposed to be I don't know if it's supposed to be dark humor we get into you know the priest saying what do you mean you intend to sin what kind of sin are we talking about Uh, I'm gonna kill the people who murdered my daughter like we have no context at this point you know we've read the query the reader maybe has read some jacket copy maybe not they have no idea what's going on you know like we're put in this very very specific situation in the confession not knowing anything that's going on so I think you know ultimately I don't think this book has really started in the right place I think we're grappling with some really interesting things but to me it just doesn't really feel like the start of the book number one because so much telling has to happen to me that's just a sign that you know it's just not the right place right but yeah I think there's so much interesting material I think the you know the mother-daughter stuff is interesting I think the you know mother you know seeking out her daughter's you know killer to the ends of the earth is extremely powerful a lot of tension there. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot to work with. It's just, I don't believe we start this book in the right place. And so not reading the whole thing, it kind of makes it hard for me to help to figure out where the right place is. Yeah. Do you think perhaps the day she gets the letter and the, the key or something is is a better place to start? I think standing in front of the safety deposit box would be interesting. You know, just the moment of like holding the key because starting with like hearing your daughter's dead is not original. So you don't want to start with that. But I think having the key in your hand or asking, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about safety deposit boxes. I'll be honest. I don't know if there are banks still, but you know, you go to the bank and you're like, Hey, tell her, can you lead me to the safety deposit box? And you know, and then they lead you there. And then you kind of go through that. Like that could be a more interesting place to start. Well, and and also there, just because it'll unfold that we will know that it's not her safety deposit box because her uncertainty being there 
and her kind of having this key and, you know, being led there and being and her hands kind of shaking as she's trying to open it will immediately let us know that there's something unusual about the situation. It's just, you know, without being told, it'll show us that there's something unusual about the situation. Cece? No, I agree. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, because we would be filled with tension. And also she could even like be thinking to herself that she's also holding in her hand, not just the key to God knows what, but also her daughter's last words to her because that was the last thing her daughter told her, like it was via writing, but that's very powerful. It would be great if there could be like someone there with her, like the priest, so we could see that relationship because apparently that's important to the story. But fine, that can be the second scene, right? Like it doesn't, she could even think about, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to confess to this. I, I don't know, but it's just, it's a great idea to start it, to start with the, at the bank. I, I, like, I also think I like the bank. priest showing up too, because wouldn't it be so interesting to see a yeah. priest and a middle-aged woman walking into a bank together? Like that's a cinematic scene to me. I like that. A priest and a middle-aged woman walk into a bank. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe she asked him to come with for emotional support, whatever the case may be is, you know, so that would, that would be an yeah. unusual opening and certainly intriguing. Yeah. Okay. So let us dive into the third query letter. I will read it. Dear Miss Waters and Miss Lira, I'm seeking representation for my 78,000 word upmarket novel, The Bat Tower. Given your interest in short, punchy novels and coming of age stories for an adult audience, I'm hoping it will be a good fit. The Bat Tower is similar in tone to Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age and thematically to Gabe Habash's Stephen Florida. Mitchell Zagurski tried to hang himself his senior year of high school after allegations of sexual misconduct cost him college wrestling scholarships and his longtime sweetheart. Now, a decade later, he's a reformed high school counselor and living the dream. Beachside apartment, loving girlfriend, and finalist for the prestigious Florida Social Worker of the Year Award. If he wins, he believes it will erase his teenage transgressions. But Mitchell's fate turns when he's asked to intervene in a school sexting scandal involving explicit photos leaked by a troubled teen, Gio Pompey. Angry over losing his girlfriend and the discipline handed to him by the school, Gio embarks on an attack against Mitchell. He digs up scandalous pictures from Mitchell's younger days, bringing his former accusations to light and costing him his job. Humiliated and unemployed, Mitchell seeks revenge. Posing as an interested home buyer, he romances Gio's realtor mother, but when she becomes pregnant, Mitchell is forced to confront his past and the man he has become. If he doesn't, he risks losing any chance of resurrecting his career and the picture-perfect life he thought he had built. I live in Chicago with my wife and two kids and work as an adolescent psychologist. My short story collection, Book X, was published by X Press under a pseudonym X. I've done readings across Chicago at Powell's, City Lit, Volumes Books, and elsewhere. My sample pages are below. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Steve. All right, Carly, do you want to open with what uh, you think of that query letter? Absolutely. I will say that every editor tells me that they want a book like Kylie Reads Such a Fun Age. It's a very popular editor comp right now. And so obviously it's a fantastic book for a good reason. So everybody is looking for this type of thing. So that's a really spot on comp for, for the market right now. I'm a little bit confused about the title. I assume, you know, The Bat Tower. I think that will explain things later on. I don't know if this is a reference to Batman or what exactly that is alluding to. But, but yeah, I've raised a little bit of a, I wonder about that kind of in my mind. I really like that we're tackling a very modern and complicated 
dilemma. I think this is hard to do and do well. So I am, I'm so happy to kind of see this because again, I think it's very modern and realistic uh, and very important. The only thing I will say is I would go through this middle paragraph and just check like the he's and the names and things like that, because we have Gio and Mitchell and we're talking about like everybody's girlfriends and things like that. So I was just a bit confused sometimes about like who, who, what, which he were talking about and which girlfriend we're talking about because the girlfriends don't have names and you don't need to name everybody in a theory, but just kind of make it clear who the he's are in there. I was also confused about, I think this is alluding to it, but it says posing as an interested home buyer, he romances Gio's realtor mother. But when she becomes pregnant, Mitchell is forced by his past. It doesn't say that Mitchell impregnates her. Like it doesn't say that they have sex. It says she becomes pregnant as if like, I don't know, immaculate conception or like, how does a woman become pregnant? I don't know. Is Gio's mother like married? Like how, again, how does this woman become pregnant is my question. Ultimately, I feel like we're tackling so many interesting things in this, but I'm kind of wondering like where the uplifting moment is happening, especially in a type of like upmarket novel. Upmarket means, you know, commercial, but also literary, right? Like that's the point. Market lives in the middle. And so if you're going to go in a more literary direction, it could mean like we are having an open-ended ending. But in order to capitalize on that sweet spot of what upmarket means, it does mean that we have to have an ending that feels complete with a sense of closure, even if it's not happy. And so I would like to see this like trend a little bit upwards in terms of the positive alluding to some sort of positive ending because right now it just seems like you've got a vendetta and you might lose it and so what you know it just is seeming like a little bit of a downer very interesting but like a little bit of a downer and I would just kind of love to see that swing up a little bit in terms of what we're working towards and why we want to hang on with this guy for so long right awesome author bio paragraph clearly you know they're established and they know what they're doing so yeah I, I think it's very strong awesome thanks Carly Cece what did you think I just want to add that I loved such a fun age as well I feel like everyone who read that book loved that book and yeah I I would give up chocolate to find another book like that for for like a month uh, not forever okay so here's here's my question about the plot the first line of the second paragraph says that Mitchell tried to hang himself his senior year of high school after allegations of sexual misconduct cost him his college wrestling scholarship and his his girlfriend, right? Like his longtime sweetheart. Question, was it the allegations that cost him that or was it the fact that he actually did something wrong? Like, was it the misconduct itself or was it the allegations? There's another line that says the same thing. When this child digs up scandalous pictures from Mitchell's younger days, bringing his former accusations to light and costing his job. Like, my question is this, did he do it? Did he, was, is he guilty of misconduct? If so, then it's not the allegations that brought him down, it's what he did. And if he didn't do it, then why is there the word reformed high school counselor? Because he doesn't need to be reformed if, he, if he's innocent, right? Yeah, I was just going to cut in and say, I love that you're pointing on this. I totally kind of skipped over that question and I really like that. It's also making me think that the, the writer is holding us at arm's length. They're not trusting us to say, to tell us the truth. And to me, that's problematic because, I don't know, we, we, we're we feeling so distant from this character already from the get-go, from the very first line of the query. And so that creates a lot of distance. So I, I like that you pointed that out. Can can I just add in here, what happens if he, this is a part of the novel in that it's an unreliable narrator and he's wanting the reader the whole time to be like, did this guy do it? Did he not do it? Etc. Then would he still give that kind of... Um, 
um, feeling in his query letter or would he be more honest with you as the agent in the query letter? Because you guys also say no spoilers. So if that is his intention, then how should that be structured? That's a very fair question. and something that I also consider that might be the case. I would suggest inserting us into the character's feelings. So for example, Mitchell feels like those allegations cost him his wrestling. And that, and that way, it's totally subjective. It's how the character sees it. And it's not potentially problematic wording. I agree with, with, with Carly's notes about the, the, the he's in the second paragraph. I, I could understand, don't get me wrong. But yeah, clarity is also, also always great since we read so many queries at the same time. And it's a very well-written query letter. I, I'm very excited to see how this is similar to such a fun age. Awesome. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? I thought this was really interesting. I'll read you the opening paragraph just so you guys can get a sense of what's going on. So it says, Mitchell Zagurski tried to hang himself his senior year of high school. If someone had told him, he'd uh, then he'd be a school shrink a decade later, about to head to a breakfast in, in his honor for being selected as Florida's social worker of the year finalist, he would have punched that person in the face. That's how he rolled. He leaned back in his leatherette swivel chair and discreetly adjusted his crotch. We're getting a lot of information, right? We're getting, you know, a little bit of the backstory, him being reformed, punching people in the face. So clearly like he was aggressive in his past. I love the like leatherette swivel chair, just like such a classic, just like <laughs> crappy high school, like not real leather chair. Clearly he's working at a public school, not a private school kind of situation, which I thought told us a lot. And he adjusted his crotch. I have some questions about this because is it like a, of a sexual nature or is it like his junk is just getting in the way and it's a hot day kind of thing? So, you know, again, it could be their intention to make us confused, but I think I would have liked to know what context we're maybe adjusting the crotch to tell me a little bit more about the crotch situation. And yeah, I, th- I think ultimately is really interesting opening here because we we have kind of a scene that we're immersed in. This guy's trying to get to his his ward nomination, you know, his finalist due or whatever at their school. And he's kind of trying to get out the door. And then a girl comes in, a teenage girl, and, you know, clearly has a teen dilemma. And so right away, like the point of him winning the award is that he is supposed to be a good social worker and yet he can't wait to get out of this meeting with this teenager so he can go to his award ceremony to kind of escape this moment. So this juxtaposition is very interesting and I can tell that this is a very skilled writer that they are able to kind of create this this dynamic. And again, we're only on page one here, people. Like, you know, we're doing a lot. So this is really, really, really strong. I thought that the teen speak was realistic. This is very hard to do. And this is kind of what I was suggesting in my my query analysis is that like tackling such a modern dilemma with teens written by an adult is really hard to do. And so this is a great example of when mentioning your job in your query is a great idea because it says, you know, in, in the query letter, it said this person counsels adolescents. So perfect. So we know that this person hears adolescents all the time, knows how they speak. And so I think that's really great. And I think that part is really strong. So I don't need to like every character. That is fine. But we want to spend time with this guy. And that's different. And so we we have, some again, this juxtaposition of him trying to get out the door while being in this meeting. And he says he regretted that she found him. Miss 14 going on 20. So it's just showing this like lack of sensitivity towards the, the teens that he's trying to help. And so for me, it's kind of like I have my back up against him a little bit. And I would just like something in these pages that just shows us a little bit of a light bulb moment going off in terms of like why we're going to spend our next, you know, 300 pages with this guy. Because then what happens is the, his, I can't remember if it's principal or whatnot, kind of pops the head in and says like, hey, you know, do you want some help? I can take care of this while you go off to your, your special luncheon. And then he waves it off and says, no, but it seemed like out of ego, not out of wanting to help the kid. Again, so a little bit conflicted about this, but no matter what, it's great tension. We have a very clear moment where we're we're trying to decide what to do. We have actual plot 
happening. You know, we have um, a sexting scandal, you know, right in our opening pages. I feel like at high school, unfortunately, it probably happens every week. <laughs> but, but you know, this, this is a dilemma that is captured in a really realistic, organic way. And I, I would look forward to how this, how this shakes out. But for me, for my personal taste, I just would need a little bit of knowing like why I'm spending my time with this guy and just hope that we're working towards a more fulfilling, not necessarily heartwarming, but like heart feeling kind of ending. Yeah, it's important to give us something redeeming about a character, even if, you know, they, they do things sometimes that aren't things that we get on board with. We need to be able to see something redeeming. Uh, Cece, your thoughts? So I think this is starting at exactly the right spot. This, this author absolutely nailed like the entry point of the novel. I am assuming, but I'm very confident in my assumption that we are supposed to find him, find this protagonist like to be an uncompassionate jerk. Great. Let's do it. Let's be unlikable. My note, which is going to sound a little weird, is I think we need to make him worse. Right now, he's like a jerk, like clearly, clearly like a jerk, but not so much of a jerk that it's he's totally hateful, you know? Like, I just think we need to make it worse. Like, lean into it. I'm all for unlikable protagonists. It makes for a more interesting story, so let's do it. There's a line on the last page. He's been talking to this girl who, by the way, he didn't even bother to ask her name. That was bothering me so much. And then he realizes, like, after like a minute of talking to her, he didn't even get her name. But he he's talking to the girl, right, who's going through, through trouble. And someone, uh, people walk by, a cluster of teachers went by laughing, spelly full. How poetic it must have looked to them a social worker late to his own recognition breakfast because he was busy saving a fragile student like this man is a narcissist I love it let's do it I say make him worse I say make him extra unlikable lean into it maybe add some inner life about like his about like the fact that he doesn't really believe this girl maybe he would just not believe her maybe he would be even more of a jerk I don't know let's make him worse because if that's the route we're going with then let's actually do it right let's not add any speed bumps let's just you know put on pump the, gas. the gas let's pump the <laughs> gas and let's do it i would add one thing i do agree we have to want to spend time with this person and since i'm saying let's make him worse that that might actually make it tricky for lots of readers so a great way to make either an antagonist or even an unlikable protagonist immediately a little bit more likable or at least a little bit more relatable is to give them someone they love right like even a total psychopath usually has one person that they're protective of that they love that they where they can have one person so so I would just add and this can be like two carefully placed lines he could have a picture of his wife whom he adores on his table his dog I don't know anyone make him love one person make him be entirely devoted to one person and he can still be a narcissist he can still be a jerk. He can still be totally uncompassionate and selfish and just not someone who should be talking to children and certainly not somebody who should be helping them. But that will make us feel a little bit warmer towards him. Like, I, I strongly believe that's a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone is real until they have an Achilles heel, right? And this, like, clearly this is a very skilled writer. And we just need to know what that Achilles heel is. And it can be really small and we can build to it or allude to it. But something, something needs to be there. Perfect. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly and Cece. We look forward to our next Books with Hook segment next week. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Just a few other things before we go into today's guest segment. CC is available for one-on-one -on -one meetings and written critiques via Manuscript Academy. You can search for that on manuscriptacademy.com, Cecilia Lira. Manuscript Academy is a year-round online writers conference, and you can make an appointment with CC for her to take a look at your first 10 pages, discuss your work, whatever the case may be is. I have various courses that will be coming up. Please go to my website, biancamaray.com, to have a look at that schedule and to make any bookings. I'll be tackling different elements of craft and doing deep dives into them 
over sessions that run for three hours. These sessions will be taped so you will be able to watch them even if you aren't in the Eastern time zone. And then finally, we have started a Ko-fi page. There are a lot of costs associated with running a podcast besides the time taken to do all the interviews, etc., etc. Editing and producing the podcast takes a lot of time, which is becoming increasingly difficult as our schedules get more busy. So we're now starting to get outside editing help, which can be quite costly. We don't want to be ruining the content of the podcast by advertising a whole bunch of stuff we don't believe in or putting in filler that's going to make the podcast less worth your while. So if you are able to make a donation to us there at Kofi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the website under biancamaray.com under the podcast section. Today's guest grew up in a diverse suburb of Toronto, but her favorite place in the world is the nearest bookstore or library. Her debut novel, Ayesha at Last, is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice set in the Toronto Muslim community. The novel was a Goodreads Choice Award finalist, was featured on the Today Show, and was a Cosmopolitan UK Book of the Year. Ayesha at Last has been optioned for film by Pascal Pictures. Her second novel, Hannah Khan Carries on, which has just come out, was an instant Canadian bestseller. The novel is a reimagining of You've Got Mail set in rival halal restaurants. She writes a culture and parenting column for the Toronto Star and has written for The Atlantic. She lives in Toronto, Canada with her husband and two sons, where she also teaches high school. It's my pleasure to welcome Uzma Jaladuddin. Uzma, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you on it. Thanks so much, Bianca. I'm really happy to be here. So let's talk all things rom-com. You had your first book come out, when was it, two years ago? Uh, in Canada, it came out in 2018. I, that was I Shot Last. And my second novel published just a couple of weeks ago, Hannah Khan Carries On, in April 2021. And it's already hit bestseller lists. It's done phenomenally well. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, before we go into rom-com as a genre, why don't you just tell our listeners a bit more about that book for those of them who are interested in it? For sure. Uh, Hannah Khan Carries On is, uh, I'm pitching it as You've Got Mail, set in rival halal restaurants. Uh, and it basically follows the titular character, Hannah Khan, who is a young 24-year-old, visibly Muslim woman living in Toronto. She is part of a restaurateur family. Her family has run an Indian restaurant in uh, the Golden Crescent neighborhood. It's a fictional neighborhood I've made up that is basically out of the east end of the city, Scarborough. And, you know, her the restaurant is not doing well. Her family is in a bit of a crisis and all of a sudden a hipster halal restaurant opens up right across the street and presents a lot of challenge and Hannah of course has other problems she uh, is interning at a radio station she faces a lot of microaggressions uh, there's a racial attack that happens to Hannah uh, in, in downtown Toronto and she has a very inconvenient thing which is that she's falling for the owner of the hipster halal restaurant across the street and the feeling is very much mutual but they're supposed to hate each other and there's also some family that comes and visits from overseas from India and uh, presents more complications. So Hannah's, you know, just facing 
all the problems all at once. It's a great, fun, family, hilarious romp. And uh, I hope listeners will pick it up. I love that because we're always saying that writers need to torture their characters. They need to stretch them to breaking points and then they need to throw even more stuff at them. And it sounds like you are quite sadistic when it comes to your characters. <laughs> and and what I also love is that the story is very clearly based in Toronto, even though it's a fictional part of Toronto, because, you know, this is the frustrating thing that as Canadian writers, we keep getting told U.S. readers don't care about Toronto, base the story somewhere else. Uh, and this is an amazing city. It's a diverse multicultural city. There's a lot going on. Okay, not at the moment, but there's not a lot happening <laughs> anywhere in the world at the moment. But uh, at the rest of the time, it's a wonderful city. So I love that you got to do that. Were you ever encouraged to base your stories elsewhere and you put your foot down or was, you know, was everybody really accepting of this is where you want to base your stories? It's such a great question because when I was a young debut writer uh, and way before my, my first novel was ever picked up for publication, this is one of the, the suggestions that was given to me by um, one of my mentors, one of my writers who said, uh, fellow writers who said, oh no, you have to change the city. You know, you, you want to get that American audience. So make sure that you set it in the United States. And I just thought, but my story is so specific to place. It's so specific to Toronto. Like, I, I don't even know what this would look like in the United States context. And it's very specific to a particular part of Toronto, the east end of the city. And I thought it was really important. And basically what I decided was I'm going to keep it in as Toronto. If this is a deal breaker for an editor, of course, we can have a conversation about it. But I hope that, you know, we've reached a point where we're okay with setting books somewhere other than Paris and New York. Like there are other cities in the world. Let's let's explore some of the other ones. Ironically, I do think that Aisha at last might have had some difficulty getting published in the beginning as a result of that. In fact, all of the uh, US editors that my my US-based agent pitched to rejected my book. And in fact, the only person who at first stepped forward was HarperCollins Canada. So they get the last laugh because the book did really well. <laughs> and uh, HarperCollins Canada loved that it was set in Toronto, of course, because they're a Canadian imprint of HarperCollins. And after after that, they turned around and sold sold it to the other territories, and no one seemed to have a problem with it at that point. Well, so, yeah. When, yeah. Once a book's wildly successful, of course <laughs> they all want to have it. But I love that you are paving the way for other Canadian writers who do want to set their stories in Toronto, and you keep getting the same advice as well. Exactly. Yeah, I, I hope I have done something. And also just the fact that I, I do believe that, you know, when, when Aisha at last came out in 2018, there were quite a few books that were set in Toronto that were sort of coming out at the same time. Um, Catherine Hernandez published her book of short stories, linked to short stories called, it was called Scarborough. You know, and there were a couple of other books as well. And they, they did quite well. So I hope writers listening to this can take some heart, you know, set your book where you want to set it and you can always have a conversation later on. Lovely. Love that. And something you said earlier as well, which is not something you're expecting to find in a rom-com, is that you have your character dealing with racism. Now, rom-coms, you know, get this reputation as being light and fluffy, and it's all about the romance. And yet here you are having your character deal with the fallout of racism, which is amazing. So that, again, makes us realize that because something's romance doesn't mean it has to be frothy and lack depth. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And and I think this is 
sort of a, a misconception that a lot of people have about the romance genre in general. Just like other genres, the romance genre is so huge. Like there's, it's such a wide, inclusive, mostly inclusive community. There's something for everyone. You can have, I think you mentioned on your podcast once, you could have like pornographic dinosaur love stories. You know, why not have a story that actually deals with some serious issues? And in fact, I believe in romance, there's been a real push for more inclusivity, more diversity. And of course, there's also been a pushback, but there has been a lot more writers who are emerging who are choosing to include, for instance, uh, biracial Black Caribbean main characters in their historical romances. It's like, you know, just because something is set in Regency London doesn't mean that there were only white people living there at the time. That's not the case. That's not even historically accurate. And for me as a, you know, I I am the daughter of immigrants from India. Uh, My parents immigrated from India in the 1970s. I grew up in, as I said, in Scarborough. I'm a visibly Muslim woman. I wear hijab. That is such an integral part of my identity and not talking about that, not bringing in that aspect of myself into the stories that I write, especially when I write about characters who are racialized themselves. It just seems like I would be ignoring reality. My reality might be very different from other people's, but I think that's the reason why people gravitate towards my stories. And just recently, I've had so many comments from readers who've been picking up Hannah Khan carries on. And they're they're saying things like, you know, this is just reflecting my reality. Thank you so much for writing these stories. I think there's a real hunger for stories that are written from a diverse perspective that do present different points of view. And I'm really happy to be writing these stories because, you know, as a writer, being vulnerable on the page is sort of our job. Completely. And it's not just important in terms of representation matters for readers seeing themselves represented on the page. It's so important for other readers who are not part of that group to understand the experience of that group. Because, you know, we say time and again that the purpose of writing is to put us in the shoes of people who we would otherwise never get to experience their experience. And I feel like literary fiction gets credit for that a lot. You know, um, literary fiction allows you to experience all of these different cultures and different experiences you wouldn't get to have. But it's not just literary fiction that's doing the heavy lifting there. Your book is a romantic comedy. So romance is one thing, having racialized characters in romance, but then you think the comedy element and you're going, hold on, we're dealing with racism in a rom-com and that feels like a disconnect, but it isn't at all because of course a story that is funny and that it has these light elements and has people falling in love can also be a story that deals with important themes. Agreed. And in fact, I think romantic comedies in particular, they need the right balance of serious issues and comedic issues. If you just have a book that's just joke, 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 I think the reader would kind of be fatigued by the end of it. And it's so, you know, coming back to what you said earlier, I, I remember as, as a younger reader myself, I, for instance, I learned so much about European history just by reading historical novels. Some of them were romance, some of them were mysteries, some of them were thrillers. But I like even now, I feel like I learned so much about Tudor England just from reading, you know, like a, a historical novel, you know, Pillars of the Earth or something like that. Just what, what it was like, because all of these authors do, uh, you know, research, they they get into details about it. And same thing, like there's a so many mystery series that are set 
in other countries. And I feel like I've learned so much about those countries, even though I've never visited them, simply by reading those books. So why can't genre novels be entertaining and, you know, sort of low-key educational? Not, not that we set out to educate people. I think ultimately the reason why one of the wonderful things that happen to readers is that you develop a healthy sense of empathy for others, uh, a healthy sense of compassion for other people's experiences. And that's one of the real gifts of reading. And as a writer, of course, my intention is not to, you know, uh, hit anyone over the head with really obvious social justice messages or anything like that. All I'm doing is I'm reflecting and writing the reality that I see around me. And, uh, you know, I, I think any reader who is interested in a book like Hannah Hahn Carries On or Aisha at Last or any of the other diverse romances that are out there are really looking for more depth in their romance novels. And that's okay. And if you don't want to, there's dinosaur porn for you. So you're good. Yeah, you're covered by the dinosaur porn. Um, <laughs> and maybe that you... has depth too. So I don't know. <laughs> I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, no. Full disclosure, me either. Um, but something that you were saying earlier is so true because as a young South African, you know, in school we were learning about South African history and British history. We were not learning about Canadian or US history. So my first exposure to the US Civil War was Gone with the Wind. Which, me too. Right, I read that too. <laughs> right. And then I was like, wow, there was this whole Civil War thing going on. Um, and that was the backdrop, but I learned so much about it as well. And like you said, I love reading sort of thrillers and mysteries and things like that and procedural novels and reading Scandinavian procedural novels is what inspired me to go visit Scandinavia. You know, so it is, exactly. it is amazing. We, we should have this well-rounded experience to all corners of the earth and all kinds of all people's experience. All right. So let's talk now specifically about rom-coms. So for the listeners out there who are writing romance, who are writing rom-coms, and there's a lot because I've recently provided a service in which anyone who wanted to join a writing group, I told them to email me and I matched them up according to genre and according to where they based. And there were tons of rom-com writers. So let's talk about like, the conventions and the tropes of the genre as as you see them or perhaps the ones that you've incorporated into your own books well, yeah for sure uh first of all i'm not gonna uh, claim to be an expert uh, i i have written two romantic comedies and i am very much an admirer and fan of the genre, both in the movie format as well as the book format, but I am not an expert. You know, there's so many different tropes. And I think just in in general, the romance genre loves their tropes. Uh, and everyone seems to have like a favorite trope that they gravitate towards when they're reading or when they're writing. And a trope for the listeners who don't know is basically a repeating pattern in literature. And tropes exist across all genres, whether you're writing literary fiction all the way to fantasy, sci-fi, thriller, and definitely in the romance genre. In fact, there's a really great website. I don't know if you've heard of this, Bianca. It's called tvtropes.org. It's fantastic. I go there sometimes and I just, there's probably a million and a half different tropes and they're all very specific. Like I, I learned what a mulligan was because of uh, <laughs> TV tropes. Anyways, some of the common romance tropes, I actually sat down and made a list uh, when I knew that we were going to be talking. My favorite, my all-time favorite is Haters to Lovers. My first novel, Aisha at Last, is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, but it's set 
set in a Muslim Toronto community. And uh, the two main characters, of course, are sort of the my reimagining of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. And they are the classic haters to lovers trope. So they start off despising each other or not really liking each other, though. We all know Mr. Darcy was really into Elizabeth from the beginning, uh, but she certainly did not like him. And then they end up uh, falling in love. Second chance romance uh, for sticking with the Jane Austen's theme. That's in one of my second favorite book by her, which is Persuasion. And so for whatever reason, uh, the first time around their love was thwarted and then they have a second chance. And then there's just like a lot of funny, you know, type types of things that are not necessarily about the book, the way the story is organized, but little thing features of romance and um, romantic comedies and, and just romance in general. So there's the trope of like the single bed, you know, you, you check into a hotel and there's only a single bed. There is the really, the one, one of the scenes that I always love in romance novels is some kind of a, a comfort scene. So a sick, one of the characters becomes ill. One of the characters, that was, yeah. That was in You've Got Mail. I love yeah. that when she had all of these tissues stuck up her nose. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that too. Yeah. And then, you know, the Tom Hanks character shows up with flowers and in their daisies. And she's like, oh, they're just so friendly. How did you know I love daisies? And the other character, usually the male character, can show his uh, nurturing side or, you know, her nurturing side. I love this. I don't know if this is a trope, but I love when at some point in the story, usually the, the, the female character, though it doesn't always have to be, stands up for the other person and really defends them possibly to their family or to other friends who are treating them badly. This happens, this is a recurring thing that happens over and over again the fake relationship the fake fiance the let's let's just date because you know it's expedient for us some kind of a ruse that's happening that of course leads to love and uh, we see this in so many it's such a common trope I love it I'm a sucker for it every single time to all the boys I love love before is a great example of that but but Uh, on that sorry uh, to interrupt before you carry on so how is it that we there are these tropes and we love them so much and we love seeing them but it doesn't feel like when we see them that it's the same old thing we're seeing over and over so what's your advice to writers to take a trope but put a spin on it that makes it feel fresh or makes it feel like their own for me it's all it comes down to character you know all of these tropes can seem very repetitive very much full of stereotypical kind of patterns and we recognize this when we read a book that just doesn't it just falls a little off or we watch a movie where like i just don't believe in these characters i don't think there was enough work done setting up who these characters are. So for me, for instance, the trope that I used in Aisha at last, and to a certain extent with Hannah Khan carries on, is the haters, the lovers trope. And I knew that the, the two main characters were going to be antagonists to each other. And what does that mean? That means that they are uh, on the surface diametrically opposed to each other. But if you scratch below the surface, they have a lot of things in common. And then you start building your character from there. So one person is an introvert. The other person is an extrovert. Maybe one person is sunny. The other person is not. Is he a cinnamon roll, which is another trope, uh, a very kind of swishy, soft, sweet guy? Is he a soft uh, man? Is she a really hard career driven type of person? And even that is a stereotype. So scratch even below the surface. What makes them tick? What do they love? What do they hate? What are they afraid of? What are what is the the broken piece of her which will fit with the broken piece of him? And that sounds like a sexual innuendo. I swear it is not. <laughs> <laughs> But the the essence of the romantic comedy is there's something wrong with both of them that somehow they not not that they they 
they solve each other's problems because we're not writing codependent men or women, but they understand each other. And through that compassion and empathy that they show each other as an audience, we feel satisfaction. Uh, there's a really great book called uh, Writing the Romantic Comedy by Billy Murnett. And it's it's an old book, but it's basic, and it's basically about screenplays. But I, uh, a friend of mine recommended it to me when I was writing Aisha at last. It was very, very useful. So, and it's, I think it's one of the only books out there on writing romantic comedies. So, you know, give that a listen, uh, give that a read if you're, if you're interested. Wonderful. So carry on with the rest of the tropes after I threw you off there. <laughs> Another example of a trope is uh, forbidden love. So for some reason, this love is forbidden and this is done in various ways. And this is actually done even in literary genres. You know, maybe one person is, is unavailable. There's familial pressure against the relationship. One person is already married. The love triangle trope has been done to death. And in fact, there's, a, you know, a, even a love square, a friend of mine just wrote a love square where there's three guys and one girl. And it's really, it was really fun to read about. <laughs> Not exactly a love square, but sort of, you know, one of the things that I think is so important in the uh, romantic comedy, when we're thinking about structure, you know, you can have all of these tropes that you're sort of playing around with and you're sort of thinking about. But what I would recommend to listeners who want to write a rom-com or even just a, a romance is to really think about those key moments in your story. So the first one, of course, it's uh, to borrow a film term, it's the meet cute, right? So where do where do your two protagonists meet for the very first time? How do they get to know each other? And uh, Aisha at last, Bianca, you know that writing a book is a really long and tedious process sometimes. It takes years. And so one of the things that I always put in my books are little jokes that are funny to me. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else will find them hilarious, but I I just throw them in for my own amusement. So one of the things that I did with Aisha at last, because I knew it was going to be a Pride and Prejudice retelling, I mean, I didn't at first, but when I figured it out, was I took these two very devout Muslim characters. And I don't know if you know this, but Muslims don't drink alcohol. I mean, I'm sure there are tons of Muslims who do, but observant Muslims try to abstain from alcohol. And Khalid in particular is like a very devout, very pious Muslim, you know, long beard, skull cap, long white robe, the whole shebang. And Aisha wears hijab. I thought it'd be really funny if they met at a bar. <laughs> it just made me laugh because it's like, where where is the the least likely place that you would find Khalid in a bar? Okay, uh, he's going to meet the love of his life at a bar because, like, who meets the love of their life at a bar? <laughs> and that and that's a major meet cute, right? For them, exactly. For them, it's a it's a major meet cute, and it fits within the context of the type of story that I was writing. It's set in a very particular community. Even even for those people who aren't familiar with Muslim customs, would read the book and know that Khalid is not a drinker for religious reasons. So why would he be at a bar? It's he's he's go, he was forced there. It's a work thing. It's just a hilarious meet cute. So think about what are the ingredients? Like put your characters in strange and awkward situations. What annoys them? Let the other person do the thing that annoys them. And you just keep digging and picking at each other, you know? And, and then of course you have the, the getting to know you montage, right? So what, what think about a classic rom-com movie. How do these two characters get to know each other? What is the resistance, of course, because, you know, if you're doing enemies to lovers or whatever, what is the vehicle that puts them in each other's orbit? Because there has to be something. So in my first novel, Aisha at last, I had two, basically Aisha and Khalid were thrown together because they were organizing an event at the mosque. And in the second case, um, Hannah and Aiden, 
they're, they live in the same neighborhood. They are rivals. She's trying to destroy his restaurant. He's trying to figure out, figure her out. So they keep bumping into each other over and over again. And how do they ultimately break down each other's barriers? How do they, you know, what is that one thing that brings them together? And that's what the reader is really there for. Like for me, I love romances where there's a long, slow burn. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of banter. There's a lot of interaction between the two main protagonists. And I want to see them fall in love. I'm not a huge fan of another trope, which is insta-love, which is, you know, love at first sight, Romeo and Juliet, ride or die type of love. Though, of course, it is a very popular trope. I want to see them slowly falling for each other. So, you know, and then, of course, you have to throw in complications. And, and that goes back to just simple plotting. So what are the complications? How are the main characters' personal lives outside of their relationship going to intrude into the romance itself because that usually happens as well. And and that's important for all genres is many writers write as if these characters exist in a vacuum. And that's not the case at all because people go to work, they have family members, they have friends, etc. And that's something you need to be cognizant of as you world build this character's life. You can't just, if, if they have no friends, I want to know why the hell don't they have any friends? <laughs> uh, they don't have any family? Why don't they have any family? If they don't have colleagues, why not? Because that tells me something kind of off about this kind of character. But many writers just write and they don't explain the absence of these things and nor do they include them. So that's very important as well. Yeah, you have to give your friend, you have to give your main characters, friends, enemies, exes, an interfering mother, a supportive father, like all of these types of things ground your character and are fodder for even more development of story and character. And <laughs> just on what you said earlier, you know, when you say there's a slow burn and what finally gets their defenses down so that they get to the point where they can fall in love with each other. And for me, that's always this moment of vulnerability, which is probably why the whole getting sick trope works so well, because yes. nothing lowers our defenses like feeling awful. Because, you know, if you're feeling sick, you just can't be sparring with somebody as you have been doing because you just don't have the strength. So it always comes down to this mo moment of vulnerability in which defenses come down and they're just able to be themselves with each other, all the peripheral stuff not being there as well. And that's something Cece talks about. Characters don't have to be likable. They don't have to be, you know, this or that, but they have to be moments where they are vulnerable. And that certainly plays into to what you're saying now as well. Yeah, in, in uh, Hannah Khan carries on, there's a moment of vulnerability that happens because it's a, a novel based in Toronto. It happens in front of the CN Tower between the two main characters because how more Toronto is that? And that moment of vulnerability is so important because it's when, and, and this is, I think, the crux of uh, romances and, uh, you know, we can talk about the comedy aspect as well. Uh, you want your two main characters to see each other. They really, you know, see something and recognize something in each other that, that maybe some other people in their in their own life can't see and that's what everyone wants they want that person in their life who sees them for who they are and still accepts them still loves them you know that's that's that beautiful moment where everything just clicks and you you as a reader you feel all the you feel all the feels at the pit of your stomach it's the best feeling yeah the other thing that could happen is uh you know all of the first act kind of setup leads to the second act uh complications are rising there's the the two main characters are falling for each other whether they're in admitting it or not. It's more fun if they don't admit it. And then, 
of course, this leads to the second act, and I'm, I'm using these terms loosely. It, it doesn't have to be a three-act structure, but oftentimes it is. Uh, the second act complication or revelation, and which then leads to the revelation of some kind of a secret or some kind of, you know, the, the reason why this is a fake relationship or revealing a real vulnerability or a complication in the person's life. Oh, I'm leaving tomorrow. I have to move out or I'm broke or I'm not who you think I am or whatever. And oftentimes this does lead to the end of the second act breakup. So the main characters often somehow are ripped apart. And then the rest of the third act is the reunification of the, the main couple. So that's generally how romances play out. The comedic aspect oftentimes in romances from what I've noticed is that the supporting cast kind of yeah. brings in the comedic uh, energy, the comic yeah. energy. And, and that's certainly been the case for both of my books. The really funny characters are Hannah's cousin, Rashid, who comes and visits from India. He is hilarious. Everyone now is now clamoring for me to write a sequel featuring him. <laughs> Isn't it amazing when the secondary characters become, you know, more popular than, than the main characters? And that's also true, you know, in a lot of films. But then at least, you know, you've done your secondary characters really well. Yes, exactly. And in classic romance novels, oftentimes the spinoffs do involve secondary characters, right? Like the series basically follows, you know, how the, the best friend now falls in love and finds love, which is great. Um, in my case, I, I don't know if I will uh, do a sequel involving Hannah's cousin Rashid. I, I'm not sure yet. But I, I can say that when you're writing and drafting your novel, it, it is possible to have so much comic relief with the secondary character that you, you know, don't fall into the trap that I I have done in the past and I had to go back and fix it, where the secondary character just leaps off the page so much and you just follow them down the rabbit hole. You know, focus on your main characters because they are where your story is living and breathing. All the secondary characters are bringing a different perspective, but, and they also need their own arc. But what I what happens sometimes is that you can become so enamored with your secondary characters that you just start ignoring your main characters. So be careful with that. Yeah, I've I've done that. I find my secondary characters to be like herding cats. Yes, they, you know you just can't get them under control, and I and I also do have an awful lot of fun with them because you can have fun with them because your main characters you're having to torture so much. Yes, and they can't always be upbeat and happy when they are having you know obstacle after obstacle after obstacles thrown at them whereas you know these people on the side they they sitting there with their bag of popcorn and they are watching this and they are loving it so they so you can have a lot more fun with them but I agree you you do need to rein them in perhaps not in the first draft perhaps you can have as much fun as you want in the first draft but certainly when it comes to editing it's something that agents and editors will tell you is that your secondary characters have taken over the story and you need to rein them back so it's certainly something you need to be aware of yeah. Uzma, our time is pretty much up. We have like raced through this. This has been oh, wow. am am amazing. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't perhaps get to? You know what? I was actually thinking this was a really good exercise for me because I was thinking about, you know, I, I'm a fan of romance novels. I'm a fan of rom-coms. I've been reading them since I was young. One thing that I, I want to urge writers to think about is the second act breakup and the way that the third act is kind of devoted to, you know, reuniting the couple. I'm getting a little tired of it. <laughs> That's what I realized. 
<laughs> the inevitable breakup at the end of act two or you know towards the last third of the book i feel like we need to shake things up a little bit and i would be really interested to see some creative way of maybe sidestepping it or you know because the whole point of that is that you're leading you're leading up towards some kind of a, a crisis right and the the couple is finally tested and then they come through with flying flying colors i don't know i i think that the romance genre is so wide and the romantic comedy genre is just a little part of it but it's a growing part of it there's a lot of interest in rom-coms whether it's from publishers or Hollywood, specifically, you know, rom-coms that tell stories that haven't oftentimes appeared in publishing and in uh, on the screen. I think it, I think it's time to shake things up a little bit. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm just throwing that out there out into the universe. Maybe someone will will get back to me about what they want. And ultimately, you know, romances are all about the feels. So get into your feelings when you're writing these lovely stories, because we all need a little bit of hopeful optimism in our life, especially during these dark days. Definitely. So Uzma has issued a challenge and I can hear a whole bunch of you out there going challenge accepted. So we look forward to to seeing uh, how you play around with that. Uzma, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy chatting with you. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Bianca. I'm a huge fan of the show. I have subscribed. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90 minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeCeLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. 
great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.